This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Mewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am so delighted to be sharing the studio, well, remotely, with Jane Smiley. She is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize. She's also a national book finalist. She's the best-selling author of Wait For It, now 33 books. A Dangerous Business is number 33. And yeah, my jaw dropped. And I've been reading you for a while and my jaw still dropped. I was like, how are we at 33? <laughs> it's so well, nice I'm sorry, you. but Mr. Salab <laughs> has beat me to the punch. Yeah. Oh, I know he has. And we're going to come back to him because I used you as an excuse to go down a couple of rabbit holes. Mm. But A Dangerous Business is set in Monterey, California in 1851. And it feels like a Western to me. It feels like oh, a Western. Yeah, it is. You okay, know, great. They, they, um, I mean, obviously, it's actually in the West. There was a quality about now Monterey had been the capital of mm-hmm. California for about a year. And there was a quality about the uh, world of Monterey at that time that was uh, unregulated. Right. You know, they, they, they did have a sheriff, but they also had vigilantes and because the landscape is so um, rough and kind of spread out, it, 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 it didn't coalesce really into what you might call um, an Eastern style civilized community. However, the historian that I consulted about the, the, for the novel, he did tell me, and, and there are other reasons to believe this, that people were generally kind and decent in Monterey. And so real crimes were pretty rare. The gold wasn't here. There was no reason to steal anybody's gold dust because they weren't going to find it, you know. There was reason to steal the land of the local Indian communities, um, but that really hadn't taken taken hold at this point because there weren't enough people basically to spread around yet. Your Western is also part detective story and part yeah. ghost story. <laughs> so you had a lot of fun with us. And I have to ask you something because Perestroika in Paris, which we all loved and we all needed exactly when it showed up. You in the past have said that, you know, you sort of, when you're finishing up a book and the examples you used specifically were Horse Heaven and Good Faith at the time. And you said, well, you know, Horse Heaven needed a little more suspense and it needed, a, I, I just, I wanted something else in the next writing experience. Mm-hmm. So how did we get to a dangerous business from Perestroika in Paris if we're using that sort of methodology? <laughs> Well, they that the fact that a dangerous business is published after Perestroika in Paris is just a coincidence. Okay, they were both pretty pretty much finished. I proposed Perestroika in Paris because of when I wanted it to come out, and because mm-hmm. I wanted it to be a, a, just a source of pleasure and sort of calm. When I first moved to Carmel Valley, where I live, and then would go into Monterey. One of the things that fascinated me was how beautifully up maintained the buildings were from the 1850s. And it really gives you, if you're walking around Monterey, it really gives you the feeling of what life would have been like in the 1850s when Monterey was just being established. And then you go down the hill and there's Carmel and Carmel Mission, and it's completely different. And then you go out into the valley where we are, and that's where the cowboys lived and or came to live. And it's another completely different place. So there's a there's a fascinating quality about our peninsula. I always tell my husband it's like a mini vacation just to go to the grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I just got interested in Carmel history and in the buildings and Frankly, I don't remember exactly how I came up with the idea of the brothel, but I did know that the main character, Eliza, is basically brought here because her her husband is a greedy jerk. (laughs) And then when she gets here and he gets shot Mm -hmm. in um, a bar fight, which he deserves. Absolutely. (laughs) 
then she has to think of something else to do because she doesn't want to go back to Michigan. Mm-hmm. Right. And just and it isn't just because of the weather either, <laughs> though the weather is perfect here. Anyway, so that's where I got the idea mm-hmm. that she goes to work in a brothel. One of the things that uh, what I enjoyed writing about the book was writing about her perceptions of her customers and what they're like, because they're kind of a a representation of all the things that are going on in Monterey at the time. There's the cowboys, there's sailors, there's, um, you know, people who just come to settle, there's wealthy people, there's people who can't quite afford it, but they want it anyway. So I saw that as a way of creating this little panorama of the world that she has come to and just really loves. It's also kind of the only way she can support herself. I mean, this is a tiny community Mm -hmm. and she really doesn't want to leave, but she also just doesn't want to leave Monterey. She could pick San Jose. I mean, you make it clear San Jose (laughs) is not that far away and it's actually a much bigger town. She's like, no, I just want to stay here. I just, I want to be part of it. And Mrs. Parker, her madam. Mrs. Parks, excuse me, is the source of the book's title. Yes. Can we talk about that for a second? Because it's it's a charming moment, actually. <laughs> Eliza doesn't know if Mrs. Parks knows what's going on with regard to the various killings. She tries to sort of figure it out, but Mrs. Parks is very kind to her. At one point, they talk about the, the various killings and some of the, you know, there are other killings, but the, these are girls um, who work in the same business who've been killed and who the vigilantes don't care about, basically. And and that at that point, Eliza says, I guess this is a dangerous business. And Mrs. Parks says, well, being a woman is a dangerous business. Mrs. Parks is a self-supporting, a fairly well-off woman also from the East, who's also been in this business for quite a long time. And so she's the one who knows about the rise of women's rights. She's the one who really, really wants women's rights to be instigated. Eliza doesn't know that much. She's raised, she was raised in a, a evangelical family and she was taught to obey, which doesn't mean that she does. <laughs> she doesn't want to go back to that. So she sort of takes Mrs. Parks on as her mentor. And protector, too. We're going to get to Jean in a second. But the thing that I appreciate about Mrs. Parks, and the reason I referred to that moment and how the book's title came about as being charming, is just that she knows how to read her customers. And she does actually know how to keep the women who are working for her relatively safe, all things considered. Yeah. And part of me thinks that she does know that there's squirreliness afoot, but she doesn't know exactly what's happening. But she's decided that she and her business and the women who work for her are sort of pulled back from mm-hmm. whatever that chaos is. The men kind of sit in the background <laughs> early on, which is not how people typically think of Westerns. I mean, you know, it's the guy on the horse. It's Clint Eastwood and the sombrero and the, <laughs> the serape and all of this. And in fact, you know, these women are really quite in control as they can be of their own lives. And, and part of the fun yeah. of Eliza and her friend Jane, Jean, excuse me. And Jean's a trip. She is an absolute, <laughs> she is fun. Jean is really fun. But they're amateur detectives. They're amateur detectives trying to figure out what's happened. They feel that they have to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I would say that Jean is much more adventuresome yeah. than um, Eliza is. I think Eliza is very fond of Jean, but in mm-hmm. some sense, Jean is the one who pushes herself and Eliza to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that Jean feels in particular danger, but, but she's, she's curious. She's interested in, in this stuff and she knows nobody else is dealing with it. So the, I think the two of them make a good pairing mm-hmm. because Jean is, is brave. Eliza is the type who people don't give maybe men, you might say, mm-hmm. who wouldn't give much credit to. So right. they they might divulge information to Eliza. 
mm-hmm. they wouldn't divulge to Jean. And Jean also, you know, occasionally she'll show up in trousers, which in 1851, <laughs> scandal, total scandal. She's a mime. She likes yeah. to pretend to mm-hmm. be all types of different people. That was really fun for me to write, to give her those pleasures mm-hmm. and, um, and those abilities, too, because she, she tricks a lot of people into thinking she's a guy. And that's actually probably safer for her and Eliza. Oh, infinitely, infinitely. And also, she's the one who introduces Eliza to Edgar Allan Poe. And she's <laughs> the one who sort of starts saying, well, let's let's look around. Mm-hmm. Let's let's we can figure this out. She's also quite a good horsewoman. She <laughs> and I love it as they go off and rent horses and they're running around because, you know, one of the things you do really well is you create the sense of place in Monterey and, you know, it's the winter, it's rainy, there is constant mud, constant mud. So moving around is actually difficult. Well, I of course had to look up what it was like and Mm -hmm. there are, there are various books and photographs. And so it was really fascinating to look. That combination of landscape, uh, landscape and sort of burgeoning, business. I mean, tra- the Pacific trade is a big deal. I mean, we talk about oranges being introduced <laughs> into Monterey for the first time. And is it a bar or a restaurant, the beast that they're always eating at? Or is it both? It's kind of everything. Uh, the Well, the place they go for breakfast is just their little restaurant. Okay. They occasionally go to some bars because okay. there were some bars. But this is, I mean, oranges as a novelty, don't eat the rind. <laughs> you know? And everyone has an opinion. All of these little moments, all of these little historical details that add up to this rather fun story. And part of that fun, though, is Jean sees ghosts. (laughs) And she has questions for them that they will not answer because they can't see. She can see them. They can't see her. So when did you decide to toss that element into? Because why not have fun? I mean, honestly, why not have fun? Well, there is a there is a tour that you can Mm -hmm. take. Monterey called the the ghosts of Monterey. And I personally don't believe in ghosts. One of my favorite places to take a little walk around is the public cemetery, which is on a little hill that overlooks the bay. And, you know, if you ever want to be buried somewhere, that's the place to be buried. And right across the street from it and a little ways down the road is this beautiful canyon. You can walk up the trees are covered with Spanish moss and there's fog. And so it's the perfect place, if you believe in ghosts, to see one. In that era, and maybe now, but I don't know, a lot of people believed in ghosts. And Gene is a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe. He seems to have believed in ghosts. So I thought that would be a good, a fun aspect of Jean's vision of what this this area is like. You've said this in other interviews. You've said this also in 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, which is your craft book. But the idea that images are the thing that orient the reader in the world that you've built. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, this Monterey is built in actual historical fact. You've mm-hmm. clearly done research and whatnot. But you do also have some freedom creating the Monterey that you want. I mean, we don't know all of the details. I mean, yes, you still have the buildings there as you sort of wander around town and whatnot, but this is your world. This is a Jane Smiley novel. (laughs) You've written also about this idea that, you know, history is history and historical fiction has to be complete in a way that writing a history book isn't necessarily. Oh, you read that one. I did. I did. (laughs) And I, but I really, one, I agree with you. And two, I really like the idea because historical fiction is having a moment. I mean, it's something that you have played in and out of. I mean, you've done more than one book that's historical fiction. But at the same time, I just this idea of your Monterey, right? The Monterey of a dangerous business, a Monterey for Eliza Ripple and Mrs. Parks and Jean and whatnot. This is, I mean, part of it is pure invention. It's you. Your whole job as a fiction writer is mm-hmm. to write a story. Yeah. And the job of the story is to keep the reader interested and going from the exposition through the climax to the denouement. What keeps the reader going is not necessarily facts, though they help. 
it's suspense. Mm-hmm. So you have to be somewhat somewhat suspenseful or really suspenseful. You know, um, you can be if you're writing a mystery, you can be Agatha Christie, who's who's kindly suspenseful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or you can be some of the other noir writers who are, who are really ready to scare the pants off you, you know. I think in 1950s, or as I pictured 1950s Monterey, there were plenty of things to scare the pants off you, just given the fact that it, we were in a wild spot. And the people who were, Jean, especially Jean's clients, like the, the sailors and stuff, they didn't know if they were going to live through the next trip to uh, Australia or whatever. But that was one of the things I liked about Jean's business was that the various guys who came in to be serviced by her were quite sometimes quite talkative about their adventures. And she learned a lot about that and by through that. And I learned a lot, too, by looking up and seeing, well, what what ships came into Monterey? Where did they come from and what did they bring? I thought that was totally fascinating. A whole hull full of anvils? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, when you start writing a book, you have an idea and you're, you're interested in your main characters and you're interested in the plot. But then when you start doing the research so that you can get the setting correctly, it becomes more and more fascinating because the details about the setting are. Um, are always things that you didn't realize or never knew. That was true when I wrote The Greenlanders, which was my first historical novel. I had an idea of what it was going to what the story was going to be like, but then I went to Greenland around the time that I was just beginning the writing and I looked around and I and it was it was not what I had imagined. So I was really glad that I went there. The details, especially for a historical novel, but for any novel, the details, stuff you learn just by walking around and checking stuff out. That's the interesting part. Which is how I get to segue now to something (laughs) we were talking about before we hit the record button, which I'm super excited about. You've talked about how Charles Dickens is sort of our mutual friend is the book that made sort of the Mm -hmm. light bulb go off and you were like, oh, I want to be a writer and whatnot. And I understand the Dickens piece of it. But he, like you, was deeply influenced by Flaubert and Balzac (laughs) and Zola. And I can hold my own a little better when I'm talking about those writers than I can about Dickens. But I do that, you know, that bridge between realism and naturalism and the idea Mm -hmm. that the truth is in the details and that you can be messy and a whole person and you don't necessarily have to like all of your characters. Because as much as I love the women in this book, there's some dudes where I was like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. Good. I don't like you. Do not like you. Do not like you one bit. Understand exactly why you're here. Do not like you. That's good because there has to be a bad guy. Right? No, I and, and I do. I do there didn't have to be one in Paris. Like in Paris. <laughs> there has to be a bad guy in a murder mystery. But can we talk about the evolution of, of you and how you see your craft? Because obviously there are three of the writers that have a huge impact on mm-hmm. the kind of work you do. And and how you teach as well. And I realize you're a professor emeritus now. You're not yes, teaching full time. Okay. But you taught for a really long time. And you know, just to be clear, Zola has also influenced Norman Mailer and Joan Didion and mm-hmm. Brandon Taylor. So like there are lots of writers out there who we can sort of draw this very direct line back to these 19th century French novelists. Well, you learn different things from different writers. Uh-huh. So um, I think the thing I learned about from learned from Dickens was mm-hmm. how to mix up stories and make them dramatic and also how to use a particular or how he used. I don't say that I, I'm stylistically like Dickens, but he was able to use his own style to really make you see stuff. And when I started reading Dickens, I was in my early teens. And yet, even though I'd never been to England, I hadn't read anything about English history, I could still see stuff that was very vivid to me. And that meant a lot to me. 
when when I got older and I and I and in high school we only basically read English literature, a little bit of American literature, but I I didn't get far enough along in French to be reading French literature. But when I got older, I started reading um, Trollope and Zola, and I thought Trollope was fascinating because Dickens wanted drama, but Trollope wanted character in a different way than Dickens did. He wanted to explore the details of character and not character of sort of semi-crazy people, but the character of people who are normal. And that, what I always called Trollope the king of ambivalence because he often writes about how to make a choice, what choice should you make? And I, I think there's a, a lot of psychological depth Mm -hmm. um, to his work. My favorite Trollope book is He Knew He Was Right, and Trollope didn't like it. And the reason he didn't like it, I think, was because he could not make Trevelyan change. He could make Mrs. Stanberry, the old, the the nasty old woman, he could make her change. But he, he launched this character, which I would say has oppositional defiant disorder. <laughs> okay. And okay. he couldn't he couldn't heal him and I think that's why he didn't like the book. But it, but it was a hugely eloquent depiction of a certain type of person and how that compared to the other types of people that Trollope felt more comfortable with. Um I also didn't read Zola until I was um you know in my middle age. And I don't even remember why I started reading Zola. I guess I just knew he was around. But the way that he explored different aspects of society, mm-hmm. I thought was really fascinating. And I, I thought, I think the I think it's called The Lady's Paradise, which is about the first department mm-hmm. store. But there were so many other books that he wrote. And everyone focused on one thing or another thing. I I thought they were fascinating. Balzac, I also love. And and for me, for him, it's kind of the precision and the depth of his exploration of his Mm -hmm. characters. So when I was reading those books, especially when I was reading them for 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, it really struck me about all of them. And let's include George Eliot and Jane Austen and the women writers of the 19th and 20th century too. What struck me about all of them is that they had their own idiosyncrasies that they couldn't get rid of. I think Trollope's rejection of his own best book um, is a perfect example of that. You are who you are. You put it on the page. And when the reader starts reading you, it's like you're meeting somebody who's been dead for a hundred years, and yet you feel like you know them and that you're connected to them. And I love that. That's the thing I love the most about novels. It's the interiority of the characters that I think keeps it all very, very fresh. If you look at the opening of Cousin Bet, even. <laughs> I went down a lot of rabbit holes last night. I went down quite a lot of rabbit holes last night. Just looking at first lines and opening pages and just flipping open books that I hadn't necessarily looked at, you know, very recently. But at the same time, you know, I remember reading Pergorio in high school. And that was sort of my first introduction. I was like, oh, these guys I get. And and Dickens always felt a little flashier and a little over the top and always kind of frantic. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but it was always kind of like, oh, here we go again. And the names. All right. Okay, here we go. Well, who's that guy that we all know who's just on the edge of being a nut? Yes. Yes, completely. completely. Um, Who holds it together and holds it together and holds it together. And for the most part, he did hold it together. He wasn't very kind to his wife, but he, he, he did his best. Given his childhood, I think he had plenty of reason to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And given his eloquence, I think that there was a kind of, I don't know, it both relieved and excited him. His own eloquence both relieved and excited him. I think he's a perfect example of a guy who these days would be in 
would be going to his therapist. <laughs> but because of when he lived, he had to be his own therapist and he right. did the best he could, you know? I think that's definitely true. I think Flaubert, though, if you look at Flaubert and his obsessiveness over language. Okay, yeah. let's take Dickens for a second. We're going to put him sort of, we're going to sit him on a shelf for a second. Yeah. But Flaubert with his whole, I refuse cliche. I've got to find a new way to say things. Mm -hmm. I've got to be very, very clear. And is, in fact, writing at a much slower pace than, say, Balzac or Zola, yeah. or Dick, certainly Dickens. I mean, everyone was writing less than Dickens. Even <laughs> Trollope was writing less than Dickens. But here's Flaubert obsessing about the language, obsessing about the movement of his characters in space. He is sort of the root, in many ways, of how we get to Monterey in 1851. I mean, you're finding all sorts of new ways to talk about feminism, to talk about these women, to talk about their lives, to talk about what they can and cannot do. I mean, they're kind of marvelous characters. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, you know, I just, I just saw them and followed them. That's mm -hmm. how I feel about okay. characters. They come on, they come in the room, you look at them, and then you follow them where they're going. And I don't theorize about them. Mm-hmm. Once they get on the stage, sometimes in the in other drafts, I say, okay, why are they doing this or why are they doing that? And often that's because the editor said, why are they doing this? Why are they do right, doing okay. that? But for me, they're just friends who I want to get close to and follow so that I can get the story all the way to the end. And that's varied from book to book. I when I was writing the trilogy, you know, yep. came out after about the first, say, third of the first book, I felt like I was just sitting in a train car with a family and they were yakking all the time. And I was basically writing down what they had to say. I hadn't really felt that before. But it's been similar to that. It's been similar to that. I didn't have to pay too much because of the trilogy, because of the theme of the trilogy, which was to follow them for the family for 100 years. I didn't have to overthink the plot. I just had to have some bad things happen once in a while, you know. But you also had a really clear organizing principle, as you call it, where each chapter is a year in mm -hmm. the life of this family, which is how we get across the 100 years in three volumes. And in a way, it's not dissimilar to sort of what Marilyn Robinson was doing in the Gilead series, or certainly Updike with Angstrom and yeah. the Rabbit Angstrom novels. But probably one of my inspirations was a trilogy by Miklos Bonfi called the Transylvanian Trilogy. The thing I that sticks in my mind is how beautifully he depicts the landscape of Central right. Europe. And he's very historically oriented, and he wants to talk about what happened. Yeah in that world um, for people who don't have any idea, even anything about that world. Those people growing up in Iowa, that's sort of my Midwestern Transylvania, Transylvanian trilogy. Obviously, the landscape is a huge piece of A Thousand Acres. It's a huge piece of a dangerous business. I mean, the idea that you're on this peninsula and there isn't mm -hmm. a lot of the mud. I'm still... Okay, par pardon the pun. I'm still stuck on the mud. I'm sorry. <laughs> we don't have to worry about that anymore because there's pavement. I understand, but but just the idea of, you know, having your movement limited because of where you physically are mm -hmm. and having your movement sort of determined by, you know, yeah, a thousand acres is not a small piece of limb, but it's also a really big millstone around your neck if it's something that you're not mm -hmm. expecting to have handed to you. Yeah. All of these ideas where place and character, and, you know, I feel the same way, obviously, with Flaubert and Balzac and Zola. Like, you can't separate their characters from their yeah. orbit as well. It's all of a piece. So did anything surprise you when you were writing A Dangerous Business or even the trilogy? I mean, are you frequently surprised when you're working on your novels? Or oh, you're just absolutely. Kind of, okay. <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, I was sort of under the impression that you don't necessarily outline, that you just sort of sit and let yourself do what you're going to do and see where it goes. Well, it varies. It varies from book to book. Okay. So okay. I knew that A Thousand Acres, since it was based on King Lear, I really had to stick close to the play. Right. 
So I I wouldn't say I outlined, but I read the play five times in a row. Mm -hmm. And at one point I sort of veered away from it and I had to make, go back and get myself back in the yoke, you know, Uh, Moo, which is one of my favorites that I just made a grid and, and across the side of the grid, I wrote the numbers of the chapters and across the top, I wrote the names of the characters. And then I put a check in the box if someone, if the character had appeared. Okay. And then I would look at the grid and I'd see that some characters were getting left behind. So I'd have them, I'd have them go to a party okay. and meet up. So for Moo, I knew we were going to go around the academic year and the characters were going to, I'm just going to try not to lose right. the characters. So my, my mode of organization is, is pretty much different okay. with every book. With this book, I mean, a murder mystery is a murder mystery. You have to know, you have to follow the line of the plot really closely, mm-hmm. or there's not enough suspense in it. Okay. So this one was sort of planned, but I kept, I had to stick, when I was doing the plans, I had to stick with okay, what's the weather like? What's going on in town? You know, I had to, I mean, these people don't, aren't as remote or what's the word I'm looking for? They aren't as removed from the natural world as we're allowed. And so I had to pay attention to those kinds of things, which is certainly a pleasure to do um, in the, on the peninsula. I'm also really glad you brought up Moo because Alison Lurie called you the Balzac. Twentieth century Midwest, and I mean, it's nice to be reviewed by Alison Lurie, certainly. But that just made me laugh. I I, because I hadn't seen that review in a really, really long time, and uh, and I'd forgotten she'd said that. (laughs) And I just it made me laugh so hard. I was like, well, it is. It does work. It absolutely works. Well, I would say that Moo was was probably the most. I mean, I loved writing Perestroika in Paris. Mm -hmm. But Moo was a lot longer, and so it took longer to write. It was the most fun because I would just be laughing at my own jokes, which is always fun, you know. <laughs> and I would, I'd think, oh, this is so funny, and I'd take it into the my family. The kids were pretty young by then, and I'd read it aloud, and they'd look at me and go, huh. <laughs> so I knew that it was me that I was entertaining. I think there were some readers that came along with that bestseller, but okay, maybe not your kids. But I do remember, I remember Moo being a big thing for a while and it made me howl. I thought it was one of the funniest books I'd ever read. I mean, I appreciate academic satires, but you know, when they're done with a little bit of glee, because um, <laughs> there was clearly a lot of glee in that book. There was, yeah. I want to go back to something you said very early in the show. Were you writing Perestroika at the same time you were writing? difficult business or were they just sort of, I mean, we all yes. had a lot of time. We had a lot well, of time. You know, I won't say I, I, I was alternating back and forth. Mm-hmm. So it's not like in the morning I'd write one, then the afternoon I'd write the other. I'd get as far as I could with one. Mm-hmm. And then I'd set it aside, wait a few days and then go on with the other one. And I'm always doing that. After you finish a draft mm-hmm. of a book, you have to set it aside in order for it to go out of your brain. Well, well, what are you going to do with the rest of your time? Well, you're going to start another book. And that serves to distract you from the one you were just writing. Also to keep you occupied and to get you interested in other subjects. Gosh, I wrote Perestroika and Paris off and on from about 2009 until publication. Just because I enjoyed it so much. And then and then I wrote this one. I think I started it about three or four years ago, maybe a little more. Just from walking around, being fascinated by Monterey and thinking, hmm, this is an interesting spot. You'd moved to Monterey in 96. So it's not, I mean, you'd been there for a yeah. while when this I've sort been of here rolled for in. A long yeah. time. Okay. But I'd come up with an idea. I was, it's sort of inspired by Joyce Carol Oates and the books okay. that she wrote under, under pseudonyms. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I thought, okay, what I should do is write a series of mysteries set in California, one in each county. And then I looked up and there are 
58 counties. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's a lot. I thought, wow, that would be a lot of books to write. But I also knew that some of them could be historical. And obviously, since Monterey was the first capital, I could start with Monterey. So that's that was what the trigger was. And I so I'd finished something, and I don't even remember what it was now. And I thought, okay, let's why don't I go work on the mystery that's set in Monterey, even if um it doesn't produce 57, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's a lot. Just because Monterey is so interesting. And then mm-hmm. when I was finished with it, I, I felt sad because if I went on with the other Californian mysteries, I'd have to leave Eliza and Jean behind. And I really like them. And I don't want to leave them behind. So, Wait, does know. this mean we're getting more? I don't Eliza know. And Jean? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, you could always just come back to them in someone else's book later. I, I, that's and sort of the joy. They could move out of Monterey and, you know, they could move up to San Jose or something. Yeah, I, I'm just having a moment of, huh, that could be really fun. <laughs> well, we'll see. It's what, 1,300 pages for the 100 Years Trilogy? Between Some Luck and Early Warning and Golden Age? Yeah, I think so, something like that. Early Warning was published in April of 15, and then Golden Age followed in October of 15, and Some Luck had been published in 14. So were you working on those three simultaneously as well, or was it just... No. The reason they were published the way they were was, Mm -hmm. basically, I wanted to end each volume without a period, just in the middle of a sentence, so that they would kind of be one really long book. Yep. But I knew that if they were <laughs> such a long book, nobody'd even be able to carry them out of a bookstore, you know. I agreed to do it as a trilogy. Got it. Okay. But I did talk Sonny Meta, who was the publisher at the time. He was, and he was a great publisher. I loved him. Mm-hmm. Um I did talk him into publishing them in in a pretty quick speed. Yeah. So that if if the readers liked them, they could keep going mm-hmm. without losing track of what had happened in the previous volume. I definitely appreciated it. And I'm sure I'm not the only reader who appreciated it, but that, the idea of keeping the momentum going, I mean, I'm perfectly happy to wait for writers to do what they need to do on their own. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not asking for a book a year necessarily, but in that particular <laughs> case, I was kind of like, wait a minute, <laughs> sorry, help. <laughs> I need to know what's up with the Langdons. I really do. <laughs> well, that's, that's very kind. Thank you. I realize this is sort of like asking you if you have a favorite child, but do you have a favorite <laughs> of your books or is it just what you've been working on at the moment? Yeah, there's some stuff that happens in A Dangerous Business that is unpleasant, but at the same time, overall, it's a really great reading experience. And part of me is thinking you had a really good time writing this. I did. I did have a good time writing it. I I quite liked um Eliza and I quite liked Jean. And then the the various people that they would meet, I thought they were interesting. So yeah, I had a good time writing that. I had a good time, really good time writing Perestroika and yeah, Perestroika. That, that showed. That that absolutely um, showed. I I just loved all the characters. Mm-hmm. And I remember my Hollywood agent at the time, she refused to propose it because there wasn't a bad guy. And I, I said, <laughs> I don't want a bad guy. I don't want a bad guy because I really liked them all. Yeah. As, you know, I can't even say especially who. I mean, I'm, I was very fond of the horse but and the dog, but I also loved the mouse and the, the mallards. And <laughs> I mean, not the mouse bite my tongue, the rat. Mm-hmm. I just I, and found it totally enjoyable writing that. The biggest puzzle was a thousand acres because I'd set myself this challenge of mm-hmm. adhering mm-hmm. to King Lear. And I'd grown up reading so much Shakespeare in school right. that I felt sort of akin to him. Sort of, he was like my uncle, you know, Uncle Bill is what I called him. And then after I'd sort of gone through King Lear word by word in order to replicated in my own way I thought boy Uncle Bill is the nicest guy is he you know he's not (laughs) still it was an interesting puzzle to solve Moo was just tons and tons of fun because I just kept myself laughing all Mm -hmm. the way 
I really enjoyed writing um, The All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton. Yep. Um, I wish it had been more of a bestseller because I think that the issues that it explored, once again, about the 1850s, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, were important issues. And, you know, I remember reading about what had gone on in Kansas in the middle of the 1850s and wondering, okay, why didn't they teach this in school? Why didn't we know this? You know, and I lived in St. Louis. We should have known that. I enjoyed that one a lot. And then writing the Greenlanders was like being under a spell. Really? Yes. And it took me about, it took me a long time to figure out the style and what I wanted to do mm-hmm. um, in the way that I wrote it. It took me about 50 pages, which I had to rewrite a few times. Every time I sat down to write it, I would just be lost in it. It was totally fascinating spell, except I didn't want to be under a spell in the future. <laughs> Wasn't it built off a Norse epic? Didn't yes. you decide it was just this? So the structure was sort of there as you said. Well, it down? was built off the idea of the Icelandic sagas. Okay. There were some sagas and mm-hmm. some narratives about the founding of the mm-hmm. Greenland colony. But I was always curious about what had happened to the Greenland colony. Archaeologists pretty much knew, but I wanted to know, or I wanted to imagine what Mm -hmm. it felt like to be there in this place at that time. I mean, when the Icelanders first moved to Greenland, Greenland, they did it because Greenland was a much more fertile and welcoming spot than Iceland was. And then the end of the medieval warm period came and uh-oh, that fascinated me. That sort of, do, that the thing, what do, we, what do we say? The apocalypse that had already happened. And then the, using that kind of archaic language, I think was what helped put me under the spell. But it was the only book that I felt that was just coming to me from somewhere else. And um, it was fascinating. I don't know. All the books have been different and I've enjoyed them all in different ways. And I want readers to enjoy them all in different ways too. If someone said to you, where do I start with Balzac? Is there a specific novel that you would say start here? No, because I think he's so idiosyncratic. I mean, maybe I would say go to the Balzac Museum and walk around. Um, it's a beautiful, interesting museum on the west side of Paris. And so much stuff is in the museum, you know, pieces of paper and how he wrote it out and then the notes he made, you know. And if you aren't intimidated by that, then you can start anywhere. But I think with every novelist, but especially a novelist whose skill is as intricate as mm-hmm. Balzac's is and his translations. I mean, I don't read French novels in French. I read right. them in English. So a lot of it depends on the translation. So, you know, I would go to a bookshop, open the first page of each novel and say, okay, this one interests me, this one doesn't. Right. And then start with that one. If your question were about Zola, yeah, I would say, okay, look at what each one is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, the, the one, the French title is L'Argent and the American title is usually Money. And that's about um, scandal, you know, the monetary scandal. <laughs> but then there's the 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 ladies' paradise, um, and that's about shopping. They're all about different things. So that you, you would pick the one that is um, about something that you're really interested mm-hmm. in. And he's definitely made a whole bunch of them that are about all kinds of things. So there's one of them that you're really interested in. Okay. And then for Trollope, you still think he knew he was right is the place to start? Well, or no, just the I best don't. Think, that, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't think that's the place to start because it's a little on the weird side. But my favorite early one of his is the Kellys and the O'Kellys. Oh, okay. So one of the Irish novels. So super early. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and that, I love that one. I think the, the ones that he wrote about the uh, five novels he wrote about Phineas, those are interesting. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. It's hard to know where to start with Trollope because you just get in there and you just keep going along like you're in a little bus, you know, and he's taking you all sorts of places and showing you all sorts of things. But he was really good in in the Irish novels, especially in the Kellys and the O'Kellys, depicting the world of Ireland in the time that he was there. You know, I think you can, with Trollope, you can start anywhere. That was sort of always my feeling, but, you know, you did teach him for a while, so I thought... I have the source right here. I should at least ask. <laughs> and we were coming dangerously close to the time that I was allotted. So I'm going to say thank you, Jane Smiley. This has been so much fun. Thank you for indulging Good. my French Good. rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I were more of an expert on uh, literature française. Uh, you know, I just, <laughs> I think it's fun that we can put everything into context and the idea that there's a connection between you and Balzac and Zola and Flaubert and Eliza and Jean and Mrs. Parks and a dangerous business delights me to no end. And, you know, if we, if we can get some people to maybe, you know, wander through the stacks and go try something new because of you, then oh, that's okay. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was really fun. Oh, thanks for having me. That's had lots of fun for me too. Hey readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We've got a couple of great books to recommend when you stop in for your copy of A Dangerous Business by Jane Smiley. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my new book buddy, Jamie. Hello. Hello, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Leawood, Kansas. Wonderful. We've got a couple of great books to chat about. Uh, If you don't mind, Jamie, I'll jump right in. Go ahead. Excellent. Thank you. So I was thinking about vigilante justice. I was thinking about women seizing control. I was thinking about just somebody being told that they don't have power and rising to the occasion. And it made me think of a newer thriller and an Edgar Award winner. Um, This is The Collective by Alison Galen. It's a fun thriller. It is basically a one to two sitting read. Uh, It moves really quickly. It pulls you forward and gives you a pretty unexpected climax, enough twists and turns to kind of wet your whistle. Uh, It follows the main character, Camille, who is still reeling and enraged five years after the death of her daughter. The privileged young man who she believes is responsible for her daughter's death um, suffered no consequence. And Camille is aching for justice. And she becomes involved with a group called The Collective. It is a gathering of grieving mothers who share similar stories of injustice and unanswered grief. Uh, These women are very smart. They are very calculating. And they're very angry. And they spend this time with their group concocting these intricate plots of revenge. Plotting these very creepy sort of ways to bring down the people who they feel were responsible for the deaths of their children. Camille feels like this is cathartic for her, but also benign. Uh, She knows that there's no way that these plots are getting enacted. This is just a way for them to vent their frustrations, right? Maybe not so much. Um, She soon learns that this is a dangerous pack and Camille really is faced with some choices as the book goes on. And I I just thought this book was a really fascinating look at what it means to feel helpless in the face of a tragedy. And when blame is very obvious, but not enacted, uh, what somebody can do and the lengths that one would go through. Uh, So if you want a fun ride with something to say, uh, please check out The Collective by Alison Galen. Sounds pretty and good. Yeah, it's a fun one. I enjoyed it. And it made me furious as well. So I I was on board with that too. What do you have for us, Jamie? All right. Uh, Well, I was thinking about the unforgettable characters that Jane Smiley created in A Dangerous Business, right? So Eliza and Jean, they're delightful. And even though the book, you know, to your point, touches on some really tough subjects and they're up against some bad things, bad guys, right? Um, I kept finding myself just loving the language and the characterization in this book. 
Um, and just all of the turns of phrase that really kept me rooted in that period where she was writing. And so that reminded me of another really excellent period um, piece, uh, a kind of new Western. I love this book. This is one, I say this frequently that I love a book, but this really is a book that I recommend to every kind of customer all the time. You've probably seen the film. This is News of the World by Colette Giles. I love that book. (laughs) This is like bookseller candy. Yep, yep. There's a film, like I said, with Tom Hanks, if you want to read, uh, you know, read the book first, but you can watch that if you like. Again, a favorite for me to recommend to customers because it has lovely prose and great characters. Uh, the setting is stark. It's northern Texas. That has a kind of beauty to it, too. And it's set right around the same time as Eliza and Jane's um, story, just a couple of years apart, these two stories. It follows Captain Kidd, uh, or he's a retired soldier, and he has been hired to bring um, a girl back who was taken from her family by Kiowa Raiders uh, who murdered her parents and um, have had her for four years. Her relatives have hired Captain Kidd, or I'm going to call him Captain. that's what she calls him, Captain Kidd. And they are just thrown together uh, in this, you know, wild, wild west situation. They have to make their way home. The prose is beautiful. The story is powerful. Um, And these, like I said, these characters uh, are some of my favorites of all time. Uh, And this is a book, I feel like I can recommend this to fiction readers and nonfiction readers alike. So people who have an interest in history or who have an interest in uh, the West or in Texas can take a look at this one. This is a, this is a great book. Oh, I absolutely agree. News of the World is tremendous. Nice choice. I love that book. And you're right. You can recommend it to all sorts of folks. And I love this sort of elevated Western um, and Jane Smiley just kind of nailed it with her book uh, for A Dangerous Business. But with something like News of the World, with something like Cormac McCarthy, uh, you know, we have a lot of customers come through who are looking for Westerns and they kind of pigeonhole themselves into the William Johnstone um, or the Elmore. Exactly. Louis L'Amour. Mm-hmm. And there are so many other delicious things to pick up. So I think it is our sacred duty as booksellers to... <laughs> show off these beautiful titles to our customers. Agreed. Uh, Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. Uh, My name is Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And my name is Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Happy reading. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.